0: All right, good evening. Thank you, Pastor Stephen, for leading us. Uh, prayer, I always like to hear about what's going on with Chris in Boston. Chris Causey have been sent out from us, and we oftentimes have been praying for him in the past. So really thankful for that update and continue. I want to continue in prayer. You got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. And we'll look tonight at chapter 30 and hopefully, hopefully chapter 31. And so we're gonna keep right on trucking along. Y'all know what I mean? Everybody good? Y'all all right? Yeah. Stephen prayed and he, y'all got all quiet and serious. So we'll have to shake you out of that. Um, really, really thankful, of course, for uh Stephen and Jeremy filling in this past weekend uh preaching and Gosh, I was able to, to watch even the night of worship, what a terrific time and just blessed with so much, not only gifts and talents at our church, but willingness of people to use those. And so really thankful for that and excited about what God is doing and going to do. This, of course, is Easter week. Um, you feel like you got Easter and Christmas. Y'all know, y'all know what I mean? Y'all ever heard the, uh, uh, the CEO Christians? Y'all ever heard of them? None of y'all are CEO Christians, are you? Christmas, Easter, and other special occasions. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And they come on those. But you have that, and that's good. So we. But but uh, at the same time, I like Easter because Christmas has become a whole month. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's Thanksgiving to, to December 25th. There's a lot in there. And Easter just kind of sneaks up on you here in the springtime. But I love the springtime. I love Easter. I love all the represents. And did y'all drive up? How many of y'all noticed when you drove up tonight, the new mulch everywhere. It is one of my favorite things on the planet. <laughs> I want to tell y'all about that. I came here, uh, this is my third Easter. This will be my third Easter here. And the first Easter, really wasn't connected to Easter. It was in the I just gotten here and a guy called me and said, Hey, I want to donate mulch to the church. And I said, are, do you know how much mulch we need? <laughs> because I didn't want to have to be picking which little bed gets mulched. You know what I'm saying? And so I said, he said, well, let me come out and look. He looked and he goes, oh yeah, it's a lot. And I said, whatever we take. He's not. no, I'm doing it all. And so he did it all and he donated the mulch and we coordinated. I said, well, you do it right before Easter. So right before Easter, it looks really nice out there with the mulch. And he said, yeah, sure. So we did it. So, I'm like, oh, that was sweet. Man, that's a lot of money. And we're gonna have to do this every year now. People will be expecting it. Every year since, third year in a row, he's called and said, I want to donate the mulch to the church. Isn't that something? Yeah. I'm just go ahead and letting y'all, ain't I, yeah, he wants to be anonymous. I'm just letting y'all know we'll take anything like that. <laughs> if you just want to give money, just give that to the general offering. But if you want to give some mulch, we don't need that. Um, But there may be something else. And so anyway, it's amazing how God supplies our needs, even down to the smallest things. Because I say all the time to our team and everything is that our church uh, should be like our own house. We welcome guests and visitors in. And so y'all know how it is. If you got a closet you shove everything into, at least shut the door. Y'all know what I'm saying? (laughs) Don't open that closet. And so there may be some of those closets around here. We try to lock those. And so people can't just open them and look. But when it comes to presentation, we should be, this is our place that we welcome people into. And so I love it. On Easter Sunday, we got new mulch out here. We got an opportunity to gather together. They say it's going to be raining this Sunday. And it doesn't matter. 2023, it's been raining every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus still is alive. And we don't know, it could have been raining on the first Easter Sunday for all I know. It doesn't tell us that. So we'll just go ahead and say, it's fine. Y'all come on. Um, but we do welcome in so many people that come. And, and I make, I'll have to tell, I'll have to tell uh, Mason later to edit some of this. But I even welcome in gladly the CEOs. You know what I'm saying? Because maybe by some way the Lord will encourage them to come back and be a part, a regular part of God's family. And so I don't bemoan them. I don't make fun of them. There's all kinds of reasons that may happen. We want to welcome them and say, we are glad you're here. We don't look at them in a way, in such a way as to say, y'all should be coming every month and now you're taking my seat. If somebody, y'all hear me when I say this now. If somebody's sitting in your seat, you say, it is so glad to have you this morning, right? If I hear some of y'all fussing about some of these CEOs sitting in your seat, I'm coming after you, not them. Y'all see what I'm saying? So glad to have you here this morning. I normally sit here, so can I sit either beside you or on your lap? See how that goes over. Don't do that either. That's a joke. Again, we're editing this stuff out. We're editing this stuff out. By the way, just let me go ahead and say that goes for every sunday All right? i shouldn't i don't have to say that around here, obviously, but man, we want to be a place where we're welcoming people in regularly, not making them feel bad for coming. You know what I mean, and so uh this Sunday's a great opportunity for that, as we'll have many on our campus just to just to just to make that and, and I'm speaking to my to the I know the choir's meeting over here, but you guys are my choir. Um, The Wednesday night choir. Um, Just to give you all some perspective of how that worked last year, uh, our average attendance last year coming up to Easter was around 11 or 1200. And at Easter, we had 2200 people here on campus. This year, our average attendance is between 15 and 1600. In just one year. We've seen the average attendance jump to between 15 and 1,600. So if you put those numbers together, who knows how many we'll have on campus this Sunday. Be welcoming be encouraging. It will be a regular schedule Sunday with one little adjustment, um, and we make this adjustment so people will feel welcome to come to any one of our services. Our band-led service will be in here at 830, and then our two other services, 940 and 11 same times, those services will be identical. It helps out with everything we do. As You know, we bring in some of the old, some of the new, in both of those services to kind of spread some people out so we don't get overrun in any which one. So those two services will be identical, but we still have our life groups meeting and everything else. It's Sunday. You're going to be wearing your best and looking all pretty. You want to go to life group and show it off. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so this Easter we're doing that, but don't also don't don't forget either that on Friday at noon we'll have our Good Friday service. Well, we'll gather together. Uh, our plan for that service is always about forty-five minutes, fifty minutes uh, from noon to about twelve forty-five. If some of you are coming or happen not to have that day off, I hope you do, but uh, are coming, then we should get you out in time if you need to get back to work. Um, I'm not really worried about you getting back to your stories. Um, Hopefully y'all know how to record those by now, but but uh, we will be meeting there and we'll look to the cross and, cons- and 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 then be taking the Lord's Supper together on Good Friday at noon. So y'all don't don't forget that. So that's this coming Friday and then of course Sunday morning celebrating Easter, the resurrection together. All right. So really excited about all that. We're going to keep going through Exodus uh, tonight. And looking at our passage, starting there in chapter thirty, we've we've put together this this little section here. Really, the last five or so chapters has been um, starting there in twenty-five, I believe, has been uh, Moses going up to the mountain back on on Sinai. Right. So remember, the Lord, the, he he leads the people out of the Exodus. The Lord leads them out and. And along the way they come, he provides everything they need. He protects them. He cares for them. The Lord does. And they get to Sinai, which is where the Lord had appeared to, to Moses in the bush that was burning and not consumed already and called him. Now, he, as he promised him back in chapter 3, on this mountain, you will worship me and see me again. So now they've come back to Sinai and there the Lord meets them again. And remember how he met them? He, the people stood back and the Lord came down. And the fire and the smoke and the rumbling and the lightning and the thunder and all of those things happen. The mountain was consumed by it, as it says, and then the Lord speaks to them. And so out of that, the Lord speaks, his thunderous presence and his voice speaks to them and gives them the what we know as the Ten Commandments. And when they get to the end of those ten, remember the people were like, all right, that's enough. We can't take this anymore. Just tell Moses what's coming next. And so the Lord then calls Moses and some of his crew to come halfway up, and he speaks to them next these few chapters of what I have called or termed the case law. He gives the Ten Commandments, which are that, that, the baseline of God's law, starting this new government of God being the king and dwelling with his people. Here's how you are to live. And so he gives them the ten, and then he builds off of that, the case law of it. Here's how you are to interact with one another. Here's how you are to handle situations that come up. Here's how you are to deal with these things. And so you get that, as I've called it, the case law there of how God, you are loving God and you are loving your neighbor. Here's how these two things go together. And then having done that now, he calls Moses on up into the cloud and there he is going to, Moses is writing down, basically God tells him he Here's what you are to do. And so now what we've looked at over the last couple weeks is how first God tells Moses all of the furniture he's to build because what is he going to do? He's going to build a tabernacle or a tent for God's dwelling place amongst his people. Remember, God saved them out of Egypt and delivered them out so he can be with them. Ultimately, that's the the goal of all this. God will dwell with his people. That's no small thing because that's exactly why God has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. So he can dwell with us. That's what heaven is. That's what the new Jerusalem coming down in Revelation is. God will be there. They have no need of the son because God is present himself. He's the light. And so God dwells with, he saves them to be with them. And so in that sense, this is what we see in Exodus. He's saving them, calling them out of slavery so he can dwell with them, be with them. And so he says, you need to build me a house, if you will. And so he builds that there. He gets the instructions to build this tent or this tabernacle, and he tells him what furniture he needs. He tells him where it's to go. He tells him what the lampstand should look like, how he should keep bread present. It's God's house. So he's got a table. He's got bread. He's got a light. He's got everything he needs. And he's got the Ark of the Covenant there in it, which is the footstool of God, representing the fact that his throne is in heaven. His footstool is here on earth, connecting these two. God is present with his people. And then he tells them about how they are to establish Aaron and through Aaron, the priesthood. And those should be consecrated. Here's what they are to wear. Here are their outfits. They should stand out as my people, holy for me, the priesthood. Here's how you are to prepare for even them. And remember last week, was it last week? Two weeks ago? That wasn't two weeks ago, was it? I was here last week, wasn't I? Remember last week? We talked about how many sacrifices had to be made for the priests. I mean, it was just bull after, it's like seven days of bulls. You got some sheep, you got some other things, all of this just to get the priest ready to enter into the holy of holies to make sacrifice on behalf of the people. And we talked about what they were wearing and how the names of the tribes were, were engraven on the stones on their chest and on their shoulders, carrying the weight of God's people on his shoulders and in his heart, basically going in to intercede on their behalf, bringing this, how he had. To be prepared to go in, separating out, getting the priests ready. We saw how that would work last week. And of course, all of this is pointing us to Christ Jesus and the need for Christ and the greater high priest that would come for us. So tonight we're going to continue in this because we've gotten the furniture. He's already told him the furniture. He's told him how the priesthood should be consecrated and set apart for himself to handle this. And now he's going to continue with some some final instructions as Moses, he's going to send Moses back down the hill. He's going to give them the two tablets with the law written by God's finger himself, it says. Going to send him back down the hill with this and the instructions. And what you'll see is at the end of chapter 31, it's it's it. You go back, Moses. That's, That's what he's getting ready to do. He sends him back. And and of course we'll see uh we'll see next time how this golden calf comes up, but that's just put that in the back of your mind for a little bit. He's gonna tell them here's the finishing touches of what this looks like. And so you'll have this, then you'll have we'll have our little golden calf episode, and then we'll see how Moses builds these things, prepares these things, and sets the tabernacle up. And that's how Exodus kind of ends. And so he gets the instructions. We're in the third part of God's section here on how he is to prepare this tabernacle and what he is to do. And that's what we're getting to tonight. So Exodus chapter 30. uh, Again, I feel like sometimes you can come in this. I'm trying to give y'all, I'm trying not to go through everything again, I mean, because it's a lot, but also bring us up to date on where we are. And then let's, let me, I'm just going to start saying some stuff and see if I find a little rut to get in and and say, there it is right there. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And y'all will know when I get in a rut. Then that's when I don't have to put the glasses back on. I just keep right on rolling. And I just keep right on going and we're good. So let's get it. Uh, Chapter 30. I want to see, we end Exodus 29 with that statement again. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Right? Highlight that. Underline that. That's what God's come to do. This is the purpose of all of this. He's going through the furniture. He's going through the priests and how they're to be set apart. Also, he can dwell with them. Remember, how can a holy God dwell with his, with his unholy people? This is how. This is the only way he's saying this could work. And then, of course, we'll see how it points to something else. But then he says in verse, in verse 46, And they shall know. Remember that theme throughout Exodus. They shall know that I am the Lord their God. Throughout Exodus, God is making himself known. He's making himself known. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Then he says, you shall make an altar. On which to burn incense, you shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be in its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding. And two opposite sides of it you shall make... Them and they shall be holders for poles for which you will carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in the front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. Regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So he starts off with this altar of incense, this thing that would lay over that Ark of the Covenant, if you will, and how it would be carried with poles, how it is made of gold, because this is, this is God's furniture here, and, and it's speaking of its purity through the gold and how you should have regularly coming from this the burning of incense. Now, I want you to jump over with me, if you will, to, to chapter 30, verse 22. Because now you have this, you also have this anointing oil and incense. And and even if you go up to the bronze basin here, another piece that he's saying got to wash yourselves. And so all this. But he but he says there in verse 22, the Lord said take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much that is 250 and 250 of aromatic Cain and 500 of the who whatever, according to the shekel of the sanctuary and a hen of olive oil and you shall make of these sacred anointing oil blended as by Perfumer, it shall be holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and its utensils, the lampstands. Everything in it should smell like this. This is the first churchwide cookbook. Y'all hear how that works, right there? Allison and I still use, don't we, Allison? Uh, the the old Lake Murray cookbook, and 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 then my I've got another one that my grandma they got. You know, how you put the names in there. And I always thought that was great. Who, who, who gave us this recipe? And I read the name, I'm like, nah, I don't want that one. And then you go to the next one. I don't think they knew what they're doing. And you go, and so maybe we need another cookbook. But he says here, there is some intensity of this where the Lord, and I want you to see the detail, remind you of that detail of how the Lord says this is exactly what it's going to be. The Lord, again, is not negotiating this deal. He didn't just say, hey, go find some sweet smelling stuff and put it out there for them to wash their hands in and put on the altar and smell good. He didn't just say, hey, go get some incense and burn it. He tells them exactly what they are to do. This is how God's, God works. It is, and I want y'all to understand this, it is God's way or no way. It really is. Oftentimes, we don't like that in our own personal autonomy, but when we come to the scriptures, God says, Here's how it's going to be. This is not a negotiation or a contract deal that you're trying to work out how you want to work. This is how it's going to be because this is exclusively the only way that you can live and dwell in my presence. It's the only way you can do it. And so, God says, This is it. But I want you to notice something else here. When we worship the Lord, in the scriptures, all of our senses are at work. I love the passages in scriptures that remind us of this, right? Not only that we, that we see God, right? We see God. But, but, but the psalmist says what? We taste and see that he is good. It's it's our taste that we do. He's he's the one that's sweet to us. His name is like honey on our lips. His law is like honey on our tongue, right? That's what the the psalmist says. We we can taste that this is good. We can see his majesty in creation and what we look out there and all around us. He says his His majesty is seen in what what we have outside and what we see. We see it, we taste it. We can hear his testimony and his goodness in our life and his word right there as we read it together. We can hear of God's goodness, taste, see, hear. But he says also we can smell. We can smell it. In other words, what's a reminder to the people is not only that they look outside of their little tent as they're walking through the wilderness to know God is with them. Pillar of fire by night, they see it. Pillar of cloud by day. They see God's presence, but they will always be able to smell his presence as well. They will smell it. In other words, you're going to it becomes it consumes you. It's what you know, it's God is with us. And isn't It's interesting that isn't that how God works for us? For us, we maybe understand this even more than the Israelites do because for us, we recognize that God is with us in some intense way that we can't describe or understand. In some intense way, we we know that God is present with us because what does Paul say about this fragrance? Are we to go and buy the fragrance ingredients here and make this anointing oil? I don't think so. I mean, you obviously can. I'm sure it smells good. And this may make a lot more than you want it to make. This may be like the Costco version of how much this is. But that's not what he says. In fact, the scriptures tell us, Paul tells us that, 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 that the fragrance of God, though, is not dead. It's not as if that fragrance is over. What does he say in 2 Corinthians? you all remember 2 Corinthians 2? I bet y'all don't remember. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is is talking to them, and he, he, he's talking about the ministry they have. So he says in verse 12, When I came to Troas... To preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads what? The fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Not only that, he keeps going. For we are the aroma We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So he says that this fragrance of God is still smelt today and it's through us. Does that mean you're supposed to smell? No, it's giving us a picture of how we are to emanate the presence of God in our own life in such a way that we live out the fruits of the Spirit, the works of the Lord in our own life, that people can consume it and see it and smell it and taste it and know that it is good. Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to God for those who are being saved and to those who are being perishing. To one is a fragrance from death to death. The other is the fragrance of life. So even our own life becomes a testimony in such a way that people that hate the smell of Christ on us turn away and reject him, but they still smell it. And they hate, they love the smell of Christ on us in such a way that they turn toward him. Our smell is always going to be bringing people in or sending people away. But understand This is a statement, I think, for Paul that's saying, therefore, we're not obnoxious in the spreading of the gospel. We are fragrant in it. And the gospel itself, right, the gospel itself is either going to turn people towards Christ or turn people away. We just simply live it in such a way that they taste it, they smell it, they see it, they hear it, all of it comes together. We become that testimony. And so for the people of Israel, they had the fragrance there, that they would smell it and know God is with us. The people around us should know God is real and he's here because we live like that before others. That becomes the testimony here in Exodus 30. The smell is not over. That precious incense of aroma of the Lord is not done. Now it emanates through those who believe, through those who believe. So let's go back. Go back next. He says then, if you have that, he gives then verse 11. Interesting passage here. Let's go. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, census is, is or is it sensei? Never mind. Um, Censuses are dangerous. They're always dangerous. Uh, the interesting thing of the of of what happened in the New Testament, you know, when Jesus has to go to Bethlehem, is because a census has been ordered. And what was that census to say? It was the Roman ruler going to let everybody know how powerful and great he was. Because when you ordered a census, you wanted to count all your people. When you count all your people, your strength was seen in your might and how many people you could bring to battle, and and how many people you are looking over. So the interesting part about the census in in Luke is that there the king was trying to show how great he was, but he was only showing that he was a puppet in the hand of God bringing about the redemption of the Lord, right? And so ultimately that's here is census can be dangerous because when we count, we start thinking our strength is in our numbers and how many people we have. and, And we start getting it mixed up about what success really looks like. But here we see the Lord says, you need to count your people. Why? Because everybody will be accounted for. There's not one one that will not matter. Everybody matters. So let's make sure everybody's counted. And so in this sense, it's that idea that everyone matters. We're all count, right? It's another way to look at it. And that's what the Lord's saying everyone matters so when you take the census of the people of Israel then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when uh, when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them we're going to speak here that he's going to count the people and there shall be or what you shall see is that no plague among them if you will in other words we're going to see several Plagues will come to the people of God. Why? Because they did not trust in the Lord and they did not take into account all that He is. And so you're going to see this in the wilderness is going to happen a couple different times, especially after they don't go in. So the Lord says, We want to make sure everyone is accounted for. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. That tells y'all what you need to know. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring It may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord here is going to demonstrate something to the people. He is going to demonstrate that in order to build God's house, there's going to be a cost. In order to build this tabernacle, there's going to be a cost. And that cost is going to be for everyone. That cost is going to be the same for everyone, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It's the same cost. It's the same thing. Everyone will have to pay it. Everyone, as he puts it here, all these adults will have to pay it, 20 years old. They'll all have to pay it. They all have to pay the same amount. If we're going to have this tabernacle, if God's going to dwell with us here, then it's going to cost all of us something. It's going to cost all of us something. Now, we've talked about generosity before and understanding. Here, I believe there's a testimony of something a little bit different, right? I think it's a testimony of something a little bit different going on because before we saw how God provided everything they needed by saying that the Egyptians will just give it to you when you leave. And then when they left, it was time, the Lord said, all right, collect it because that's what we need to make this stuff. The Lord provides it. He owns all of our finances. He owns all of our stuff. He owns all of our money. We're just stewards and we give it back to him faithfully and lovingly. That's how we see it. Here, there's a little bit something different going on. In order to build God's house, there will be a cost. And he calls this atonement or ransom. The idea here is that God's presence with his people, God's presence with his people will be to restore this broken relationship that had been between God and man. We're starting to see the reversal of the curse of Genesis 3. Remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, God dwelt with man happily. Remember, they were naked, 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 either one, and they were not ashamed. There was Him dwelling, walking with them in the midst of the garden. He was dwelling, He was living with His people. And then Genesis three happens, sin enters in and the peace that God had with his people was lost. The, the, the the devil, the great serpent as revelation 12 puts it, he's the great disturber of God's peace and the peace that was between God and man so they could dwell together in the garden was lost. Lost. And now there's enmity between God and man because of sin and rebellion. And so now what we see is God is starting to, here in Exodus, restore that enmity. He's starting to say, we're going to dwell again together. And in order to do that, here's what it's going to take. And now it's not going to be just easy as it was in the garden. There shall be some atonement, some ransom. There should be some payment. It's going to cost you something. To dwell with God. It's going to cost something to dwell with the Lord. And so here he says, everybody has to be accounted for. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give to the Lord's offering and everyone will pay the same price. Everyone will pay the same price. This tax, as he says, will be necessary for the construction, for the construction of the tabernacle. He tells them, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. Every person, rich or poor, must contribute. Every life is of equal worth, in other words. The census ensures that they'll all be counted. And this, my friends, is not about a tithe, if you will. This is about the cost of atonement for the people of God. The cost of atonement. This is what he's saying, you must invest in yourself. You must invest in yourself. This is what it's going to take. It's going to cost you something. And so ultimately, the Lord will provide this uh, through his people to take care of his tent. And this will be a reminder for them. It says it down there in the last little verse, in verse 16 the people of Israel to remembrance. It may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord as the atonement for your lives. A reminder to them. But what we know here is the point is not human wealth buying salvation or atonement. That's not what the Lord's doing here. What the Lord is doing, I think, to his people is showing them, is demonstrating to them that true atonement and ransom, true reconciliation, God dwelling with his people is going to cost something. For everyone, all of you are going to have to pay it. All of you have a debt, and all of you are going to have to pay it. And this little tax that he puts is not going to pay back the debt. It's going to be a testimony to the debt you owe. It's going to be a reminder of what you have to pay. It's going to be a remembrance to what you have to put before the Lord in order to have your salvation given and granted, your atonement given and granted. It's going to be a reminder and a given to that. Of course, obviously this teaches us or shows us something that we know. Just as we see that this smell and the aroma of God that is dwelling there, showing God's people, we also recognize, we also recognize that that, that, that aroma is in us. We, we see here that the atonement we know was paid for us, right? In other words, the census tax was just letting us know that it's going to cost something in order for atonement to be made. And you don't have enough money to give it. You don't have enough money to really do it. It's not really going to buy you. So there's going to come one who will pay your atonement tax himself, in other words. There's going to come one who will pay that ransom tax for you. All the Lord is demonstrating here is that salvation is going to cost It's going to be expensive. It's the same price for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, how much you have or where you have. You have to pay the same price as everybody else. You have to offer up the same thing as everybody else, right? It doesn't matter any of those things. Every single person has to pay it. Every single person has to pay the same thing. All of you owe this tax. And what you find is you cannot fulfill the debt you owe. God will use this not only to sustain his tabernacle, his temple, but he'll also use it as a demonstration to his people that this is going to cost. Me dwelling with you will cost. And ultimately, we know, and I don't have to say it, right? My favorite, I I say this all the time. So I want you all to hear me when I say this. I will say something is my favorite and I'll say like 20 some things are my favorite. Does that make sense? I do not think favorites are mutually exclusive. Does everybody get what I'm saying? My favorite Bible verse is this, and I'll say next week my favorite Bible verse is another one, because they're all my favorite. Y'all see what I mean? I do have some favorite hymns, right? I do have some favorite hymns, but I got multiple favorite hymns, because I don't think favorites are mutually exclusive. I know that the word actually makes it sound like that, you know. but I say all my kids are my favorite. I don't mutually exclude anybody else out. You know what I mean? They're all my favorite. At certain times, more favorite than others. (laughs) I mean, seriously, my favorite hymn. One of my favorite hymns. I mean, a favorite hymn of mine. It's Jesus Paid It All, right? I think we're singing that this Sunday, I like it. And by the way, a lot of things we do with the hymns and we the little chorus we add to Jesus paid it all. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Man, I love that. We can sing that all day long. That idea, though, is exactly what he's talking about. We owed a debt we could not pay, right? We had something we could not offer. This temple tax for them is telling them it's going to cost you something and all the money you got, you're going to have to pay that half shekel over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you got nothing left. You will keep having to pay it and what it teaches you is that you ain't got enough money to earn or pay off your debt you owe to me. It has to come and it's got to keep coming and it's got to keep coming. But they'll come a day when the Lord will say, let me go ahead and pay all of this debt on your behalf. I'm going to go ahead and make this atonement for you. And this atonement tax is only pointing to a day when our debts will finally be relieved. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm looking for a day when there's no more taxes. Amen? Y'all know what I'm saying right now? I should get a rise. I'm looking for that day when we can say my debt has been paid. And it's been paid in full. Jesus paid it all. But I got to keep going quickly. There's a lot here. Y'all get mad at me for taking so long to go through this stuff. But man, my goodness, have y'all seen all this stuff in here? We got to go. 31. I mean, you got the, the last little section here. The aroma were mine, the people. I mean, I left out something. That aroma tells them that they shall be holy and holy unto the Lord, just like we are in verse, 20, verse 32. Ramon, ram, the uh, uh, aroma of incense, of the washing, of the oil, the anointing, is that aroma reminding the people of the, of the presence of God with them through that aroma, that smell. They can see him. They can smell him. They can taste him to know He is good. They also see here that they will have to be taxed in order to recognize that the atonement's gonna cost them something and everybody will have to pay the same price. But then you have the third one. And I think this gets to the the ultimate thrust of all of this because this is the last chapter in the Lord's speech to Moses before he sends him down the mountain. And the last thing he's gonna tell him, he says, when you go down, you're gonna have, uh, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze. By the way, you have already seen these three precious metals, the gold of the altar, the silver of the shekel, the bronze of the basin, all worked into this. And he says, these precious metals, I've already given So what he's saying is, I am going to set aside some craftsmen for you. And I am going to empower them through the spirit of God. This is the first time this language is being used. I'm going to fill them with the spirit so that they will have the gifts and talents to build what I'm calling you to build. So not only is the Lord provided the provided the the guidelines for them. He's provided the materials for them. Now he's saying, I'm going to give the craftsman the ability to do this. Do y'all not see a theme here? It is provided for, it is given, it is designed by, and it is empowered by God himself. By the way, there's a simple little difference. And again, I'm, I'm dealing with big things that you can boil down quickly. There's a simple little difference here in the work of the spirit. And and, and, and it's oftentimes, and I think it gets down to quite this simple, if you will, before Pentecost and the indwelling spirit, after what Christ has done for us, the, the spirit indwells within the believers who have been born again by the precious blood of Christ. We see the spirit work in the Old Testament, though, too, don't we? And there's a difference here. There is in the New Testament, for New Testament believers, the indwelling power of the Spirit, where the Spirit comes and lives within us. In the Old Testament, we see the empowering power of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit empowers people for a task at a time and at a place. That's why in the Old Testament, you'll see the Spirit come on to Saul and leave Saul. You'll see the Spirit come into someone for a task and leave it. You see that the Spirit's work is different in the Old Testament. It is there, it is working, but that Spirit empowers, whereas in the New Testament, it indwells. Does that make sense everybody? And here the Lord says, now you have the empowering Spirit. I'm gonna give everybody what they need. I'm gonna give this one guy, Especially what he needs intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, artistic design. I'm going to give him what he needs to build what you have. In other words, God is going to empower people with gifts to build his house. Does that not sound like the church itself? God's house is the body of Christ being built up into this, and God empowers us through his spirit in dwelling in us with the gifts and talents we need in order to be the church of Jesus Christ, right? That empowering, by the way, for us has nothing to do with buildings and structures. We got nice buildings. We got great mulch. <laughs> but our buildings and our mulch do not define us as a church, All of this could blow away tomorrow with a tornado, and we are still First Baptist Church of Taylor's, right? We are still the gathered body. The church is people. We are still this, and God has gifted us in enormous ways with everything we need to build up his house as Taylor's First Baptist in this local congregation. He's given us everything we need. In fact, he's given us an abundance of riches in these things. And so he's filled with the Spirit, his people, so they have everything they need to be his church, to build up his tabernacle. He does that same thing here. He empowers them. They have everything they need to build his house. And then he says what? All of this is done. You've got the furniture you got, the design you've got, the necessity of the priest and what they do, you have the the fragrance and the aroma, the presence of God, holy unto the Lord. You have the temple tax, if you will, the atonement tax to to help you run this place and do it. Showing that's going to cost something for this atonement to be made. Finally, what's the goal of all of this? He comes down and says in verse. Twelve And the Lord said to Moses, "'You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, "'Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, "'for this is a sign between me and you "'throughout your generations that you may know "'that I, the Lord, sanctify you. "'You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. "'Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death.'" Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does my work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Y'all hear that? The Lord is saying, I'm going to give you all you need to do the work to fulfill the ministry of this place in this presence. But you will not, you will not do that work on the seventh day. You will rest. You'll rest. Now, obviously you see that language. Anybody who works, does anything, shall be cut off and put to death. That's why when you get to the New Testament, the Pharisees had some 600 laws, if you will, are more surrounding the Sabbath. They had created a hedge around it. So not only would you not uh, cross over and do some work, they had it protected in such a way, there's not even a hint of it for them. They were trying their best because you saw that language there, right? You saw that language. And so every time Jesus did something to help somebody on the Sabbath, what did they do? Oh, this is wrong. Jesus, you, you, this is how they kept trying to get him. You're doing work. You're doing something. He spat on the ground, made some mud. But, oh, who healed you? Did they do this on the Sabbath? Y'all remember how that works? And they're always trying to get him because, because of language like this. And Jesus comes back and he says, Y'all have to remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, our life is not made in such a we have to be structured and ordered by that day. That was made for us as a blessing, not a burden. A blessing for us, not a burden. And that's why Isaiah says, "Call the Sabbath a delight. It was a burden for the people. They had made it into a burden that they were scared to, 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 to do anything and all these, other, but that wasn't what it was meant. The Lord was saying to them. There's coming a day where you will have to rest. Every week you'll be reminded of that rest. And the Sabbath day tied so many things together: the history, the experience, the nation itself, the redemption that God will give, the grace, the obedience, the covenant. All of these things are tied up in this Sabbath day. All of God's promises tied up in this day. In fact, he's saying, I'm coming to dwell with you so that you can work and rest, right? That's why I'm coming. That rest is important. And Jesus says, that's right. It's important. But I've come for all those who labor. For anyone who labors and is heavy laden, Jesus said what? I will give you rest for I am humble and lowly. I'm offering you the rest in such a way that the author of Hebrews says, you remember that rest that they were talking about in chapter four of Hebrews? Remember that rest they were talking about? Those people labored on and on. They never found the rest. But there is a rest that is waiting for us. And what is the rest waiting for us? That day was a sign, just like circumcision is a sign, just like the rainbow was a sign. That day was a sign to the people that God is, has a day for us where that rest will continue. But that day, as we see that sign being fulfilled, is not in a 24-hour period. That day ultimately is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, as he calls us, is our Sabbath. Sabbath. We find our rest in him from all of our labors, from our census tax, our atonement tax that we don't have enough to pay. We rest in him, the one who who strengthens us and empowers us, the one who saves us and redeems us. We rest in him. It's Jesus that we find our rest in. And so we honor the Sabbath by resting in Christ, not in a day, in a person. By the way, there's a reason why we as Christians do not, Worship on the seventh day, right? We worship on the first day. And why is that? Y'all know? That's when Jesus rose from the grave. We're going to celebrate that first one, that day that he rose from the grave, this Sunday. But we celebrate that every single Sunday. Jesus is alive. That's why we gather. Because that Sabbath, all of those things, now is not in a day and all those rules. Sure, you can make up some things for you. You can decide, you know what, on Sundays I'm going to take a three-hour nap. I think that's noble and wise. (laughs) But a three-hour nap's not getting you to heaven. I wish it would. At least be added in. A three-hour nap's not getting you there. Or resting from this or that on earth is not getting you to heaven. It may remind you of the rest you have, but it's not getting you to glory. The only thing getting you into the eternal rest of Christ Jesus is by trusting and believing in him. Giving up your labors, giving up your efforts, and depending upon the work of Christ Jesus and what he's done for you and your behalf. That's where we find our rest. And here the Lord is saying, I'm calling you out, saving you from Egypt so I can dwell with you and so that you can rest, so that you can rest. And so it is for us. The Lord has saved us from a greater burden of slavery, the slavery of sin. He's called us out with a greater Moses, Jesus Christ himself. He's called us to a greater rest, the rest that our Savior provides and an atonement that has been paid in full on our behalf. He's called us to all of that. In Exodus, you see these three themes coming together or this one theme, how are we going to know God? How do we, that's what this main thing, you're going to know God, he says. I'm going to make myself known. And we've seen how that works. We've seen it in the redemption history of Exodus and how he calls them out in chapter 6. He says, you're going to know me because I'm going to save you out of the bondage of slavery. And I'm going to deliver you out of it. He says, that's how you're going to know me. He says, then later, you're going to know me through the ongoing dwelling within the tabernacle. In chapter 29, we read it earlier in 46, they shall know that I'm the Lord the God who brought them out. Why? Because I dwell with them. You shall know me from the fact that I'm going to dwell with you. And you shall know me, finally, from the Sabbath rest I'm going to provide for you. You shall know I'm God because I'm going to give you rest. They didn't have rest in Egypt. They worked seven days, laboring on and on in slavery and bondage, never finding rest. God says, I will will give you rest. I'm going to give it to you. All of that, the redemption of God's people out of the bondage of slavery, of sin, the indwelling presence of God within our own very hearts through his spirit, and the Sabbath rest that has been provided for us. All of that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. This stuff's important because it points us to what Christ has done for us. And because of what Christ has done, we become the fragrant aroma of him. He has filled us, he's indwelled us, he's empowered us for the work before us, and he has let us rest from our sin because he has paid our tax, atonement tax, on our behalf in full. So therefore, we live we live in the rest that Christ has provided and we become a fragrant aroma of him to all who are around us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. God, you are precious. And so may we consider you just that. Thank you for Jesus and the rest that he's provided. As we look to this weekend, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, God, may we celebrate Christ and admit in every step, in every heartbeat, in every breath, our absolute dependence upon him. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 7.35, y'all just consider those five minutes overtime, all right? And uh, love y'all, appreciate y'all. We'll see you Friday and Sunday, be here. By the way, as you leave out of here in the Welcome Center, there's a basket with some of those invites. I think we have like 30 of those left, 20 or 30 of those left. Each one has three invites in it. Please take those. Invite somebody. We also have yard signs. I mean, these are done by Sunday. So if you have an or need a yard sign, they're right there in the welcome center. Put it in your yard. Invite somebody to come in. Thank y'all.